Welcome to Independent Americans. Welcome to episode 119. 119, wow. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. Now, more than any other time, now is a time to stay vigilant. But it's also a time to relax and enjoy the summer and get outside. So we're playing a best of for a couple weeks. We'll be back later in the summer with all new episodes, but I want to flash back and bring you one of our best episodes ever that's perfect for right now. As we reflect on Flag Day, as we reflect on the anniversary of the United States Army, and as we get ready for Father's Day, this is one of my favorite conversations from way back in episode 10. We recorded it in June of 2019 in New York City at our favorite spot, the Classic Car Club, with one of the fastest rising stars in American politics, our friend Wes Moore. When we talked to him then, he was already on the rise. He was a best-selling author. He was running a great nonprofit called Robin Hood, and he was thinking about what's next. Now we know. Recently, Wes Moore announced he's running to become the governor of Maryland. He'd be one of the youngest governors in the country and only the third black governor ever elected in history and one of the first post-9-11 veterans. I've always said that I'd support Wes no matter what party he ran from and, of course, if he ran from no party at all and in any race because I think he's one of the most earnest, sincere, dynamic, inspiring leaders of our time. And I think one day he could be in the White House. After many of you have heard him on the show, in episode 10 and then episodes that followed, many of you felt the same way. If you've never heard of Wes Moore, you're about to be impressed. If you heard this episode and you've been with us for over 100 episodes, thanks for sticking around. And you're going to love flashing all the way back two years to see a star in the making. We talk about politics, we talk about race, we talk about leadership, and we talk about fatherhood. So as we recognize this Father's Day, a Father's Day when the country's opening up, spirits are higher, our country's healthier, and we're bouncing off bottom, it's the perfect episode. Whether you're a dad, you want to share it with your favorite dad, or you ever had a dad, this is an episode for you. So I hope it'll help power you into another great week of summer. And we'll be back with all new conversations later in the summer. Until then, be sure to check out the video from this episode and all others at independentamericans.us. You can also get your dad or any dad some great Independent Americans merch for Father's Day. It's at independentamericans.us. You can also find us everywhere and on social and join us on Patreon. After maybe the hardest year of our lifetime, America's bouncing off bottom this summer. And we're all going to climb higher in the days to come. Thanks in part to the leadership of people like Wes Moore. Be sure to check out his campaign, whether you're in Maryland or not, and support this guy. He's one of the good ones. And when we say look for the helpers, we mean Wes Moore. There's a lot going on out there. The NBA playoffs are down to the final couple of teams. Many schools are already out for the summer. And Joe Biden just met with Vladimir Putin. But we're going to take a breath and we're going to reflect and we're going to enjoy and savor this summer with some of our best conversations. Here it is, my conversation with Wes Moore. Happy Father's Day and stay vigilant. Hey, 
And we are live. We are. Angry Americans of the world. We have a very, very special treat today. <laughs> the great and powerful Wes Moore is here today. And I've been looking forward to this, man. I, let me tell you, I have been looking forward to this for a very, very long time, man. And first, congratulations. This show is fantastic. And it is, uh, it's nerve-wracking, but really exciting to be on it. So I'm excited for this, man. Ner Thank you. Why nerve-wracking? Because I know you. And, <laughs> and, I, know, and I, know, I know you'll go anywhere with stuff. And, and it's one of the reasons why I love you. But for an interview format, it's scary as hell. So, uh, and you've been on pretty much every show under the sun. Yeah, yeah. And th this, one, this one is actually one of the ones where you're just not sure exactly uh, how to prepare. But you know you better prepare. In some so ways. outside of this show, what was the most intimidating show you ever went on? Um... Stephen Colbert. I agree. That's actually a really scary interview. I agree. And did he do the same thing? So when, I remember right before I went on his show, he came into the green room, and I'm sure he does it to a lot of people, but he comes in and he says, hey, introduce myself, and I'm like, hey, I know who you are, nice to meet you, thanks for having me on your show. And he says to me, he says, I just wanna let you know, in 10 minutes, you're gonna meet a real jackass. 100%. You know? He's like, you're going to meet someone who doesn't know what he's talking about, but he thinks he does. And he said, I'm just going to give you two pieces of advice. One, take it all with a grain of salt. And two, try to educate him as much as you possibly can. And he's like, you got it? And I was like, I got it. And he's like, I'll see you in 10 minutes. <laughs> this <laughs> he was when he out. was on the Colbert Report. That's when he's on the Colbert he on the Report. Show. Yeah, I did the Colbert Report like maybe a month after it launched. Wow. And I did it, I think, two or three days after he did the White House Correspondence Dinner where he shredded Bush. And it was when, he, when a lot of people still didn't know he was in character. They didn't yeah. know it was a shtick. Yeah. And he and I had an interaction where I could tell, I mentioned it, I said, you were amazing at the White House Correspondence Dinner. But I could also tell he had this trepidation in his eyes yeah. because he had been getting death threats. I mean, it was the first time yes. he really blew up and it was the first time anybody really ever criticized Bush to his face. And he was wow. sitting like five feet away from him, but he came in and did the same shtick. He said, look, I'm gonna be a real jerk. I'm gonna be in character. And then, you know, things are gonna change. Yeah. And so it was a really um, cool experience, but it's like getting interviewed by a rattlesnake. Totally. Cause you don't know where he's gonna go. And you can only play with him but so much before eventually that snake is gonna strike you. At some point, you know it's coming, but the thing is, you don't know when. Only the snake knows it. And that's the hard thing about it. That's a good little segment right there. I'm telling you, man. I am not going to be a snake. And I'm not going to bite you. I actually come bearing drinks. So we, you, you asked me before the show, what are yeah. we going to drink? Yes. and Because um, I was like, what is an angry American drink? Angry Americans drink whatever they want. <laughs> or they drink nothing. <laughs> they drink we are nothing. full of surprises. This show is full of surprises. Today, we are drinking an Aperol Spritz. I like it. And, and to those of you that don't know, an Aperol Spritz is a delightful cocktail. Yeah. I went to Italy once and started drinking these, and it became like Gatorade for me. <laughs> but they're refreshing and delicious. They are. And a little potent and great. The weather's getting good. Summer is here. So It is. Cheers. To you, sir. To you, We are, we are to cheering. You. We are toasting. They are. And they're, um, they're, they're pretty drinks. And between the Aperol Spritz and the uh, aerodynamic chairs... I'm good. You like the chairs? I'm good. I'm okay. Good. Okay. This is great. I th actually, I think I need to start by sharing with people how we met. If you, you love mind. this story, I love this story. Okay, and please. it is it's 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 so Rykoff. So okay. Um, I'm coming. I come back from Afghanistan, uh, and I'm watching this guy on television who was one of the clearest, most thoughtful, and most aggressive advocates for us. 
this guy named Paul Rykoff. And I'm watching him on these shows, and I just really admire him. I admire the way he pushes on issues. I admire the intellect. I admire the compassion that he brings to this. And we're at an event, and I'm in the bathroom, and I'm go to the you know to the urinal, and in the urinal next to me is Paul Rykoff. So I'm kind of sitting there, and I'm trying to I'm doing my business, but I'm like I'm looking at him, and I'm like this is the same dude who I'm watching on television who I really respect. So. Rykoff finishes up his business. I finish up my business. We go over and we're washing our hands. And I say to him, I said, listen, man, um, I just want to let you know I really admire you, which is probably a very odd thing to say to someone who you're standing next to a, a urinal with. I was surprised. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I'm not sure what the hell you're talking about right now. And then I said, I was like, you know, I'm an Afghan vet. And I just have to tell you how much I respect your voice on these issues. And it just turned into one of the most important friendships in my life. So uh, I really appreciate you, man. Thank always you, Always have, always will. Thank you, man. It all started at a urinal. It all started at a urinal. And that you know is what? a great title of, a, of like a blog or a podcast. It all started at a urinal. Okay. That might be the intro to this part. You know, when I can hear your New York accent only certain times. Yeah. And I hear it when you say urinal. <laughs> right because you 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 grew up originally i did in the bronx i did and then ended up in baltimore afghanistan yes. all around the world yes and yes. i really i was excited to talk to you for a number of reasons but i my interviews for this show i have tried to select people who are important iconic influential inspiring people who are shaping what it means to be american and who will shape the future of what it means to be american and i think there's nobody that, that, that I put higher on that list than you. Wow. So I'm glad we could finally make this happen. You're also the only person that's brought a security slash staff <laughs> slash entourage with you. The great Brian Jones is here. He said he wouldn't have a drink, and now he's sitting in the back watching us with a drink <laughs> off camera. You folks can't see that. Out of audio range. It's but- a live studio audience. He's a live studio audience of him and our amazing video master, Ben Stoffer. And me and you in the Manhattan Classic Car Club. Thank you again for coming here. My pleasure. This is a very special place for us. It's been hosting us throughout this season. Um, And it's gorgeous. It's a beautiful place. Well, you know, we usually we we go in a different direction, but I I want to start with that question for you. Westmore, what was your first car? Uh, So it's a cool story. My first car um, was a forest green Jeep Cherokee. And I got it when I was 19 years old. And so the story behind it was this, was, uh, you know, I, I, I had some challenges growing up. Yes, um, well-documented at this point. Well-documented challenges. I mean, where, where literally I, uh, you know, I, I got moved around to multiple schools, got, uh, first time that I've had handcuffs on my wrist was when I was 11, up here in New York, up here in the Bronx. And, uh, and I would say when I was a freshman in high school, I was sent to military school when I was in eighth grade. And I had a mandatory year in military school um, that I hated every minute of when I first went, where I, I ran away five times in the first four days. Um, but eventually, the place, uh, it didn't just help me, it, it in many ways changed me. Um, it was my first taste of military culture. It was my first taste of, 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 of organized leadership in that way. Uh, it was a chance to remake my identity, which was something I think I really needed at that point. And uh, just a way to think differently about what my future could be. Uh, after that year was over, I had the choice at that point to go back to school. We we're back down in Baltimore. I had the chance to go back to school in Baltimore if I wanted to. And I said, actually, if it's okay, I'd like to sit tight. I ended up finishing high school there. But during my freshman year of high school, I was having a conversation with my mom and, we're out and I was, we were talking about college. 
And we didn't really talk about college mm. before then. Um, and I think she, was, she got excited and kind of exuberant and she made a promise that she didn't realize one day she'd have to keep where she was like, you know, if you get a full scholarship to college, I'll buy you a car. Wow, good deal. I was like, for real? She's like, yeah, if you get a full scholarship to college, I'll buy you a car. Again, I think she probably did it on the assumption <laughs> that that was never gonna be anything that she would ever have to honor. Um, but when Your mother's I, a smart woman. I think she knew she was going to have to pay that bet. I, and, I, and honestly, I think for her, she probably also thought that, listen, hey, if he gets a full scholarship, we'll figure it out, right? She probably thought you'd pick a cheaper car, she too. She probably did. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> she probably did. Yeah. But um, when I finished high school, I ended up uh, deciding that I wanted to, to join the Army. And I went through all my, you know, uh, all, all my basics with the Army, uh, ended up getting an ROTC scholarship. And so the army ended up paying for college. And so technically, I mean, even when I made that promise with her, you know, of course, I, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm gonna get a basketball scholarship. Right, right. I'll be playing for, for Syracuse. Right, right. Uh, but it's a full scholarship. No matter how the money comes, it's a full scholarship. And one day she came up to see me during my freshman year of college. I was, I was actually at a two year school at that time. Uh, uh, you were at Valley, Valley Forge, Forge, Forge yeah, Military, military Academy. Yep. And so uh, she comes up and, uh, we're hanging out and we get something to eat while she comes up and visits me. And then I'm like, all right, I'll walk you to the parking lot because I thought that's where she parked the car. And we're walking to the parking lot and I didn't see her car. And she was like, oh, she's like, that's right, my car isn't here. And she said, but yours is. And she reaches in her pocket and she pulls out keys to a, you know, uh, probably had 40,000 miles on a used, but a, a used forest green Jeep Cherokee. Wow was my first car and I'm like I was I was blown I was blown away not just because it was like I have my own car and it felt crazy that I now had a car um but she kept her promise and I didn't even remind her like I it was something I completely forgot about but she kept her promise even when she technically I guess didn't have to because it wasn't like I was bringing it up um but I think that's also a real indication of who she is as a person too and so that was my first vehicle. Excellent. Do you know what year that car was? That car was probably like a 92 Jeep Cherokee. Uh, and it lasted, a, it lasted a, good, a good while. I mean, it probably lasted me a good another four years after, after I got it. You take it with you to college? Out. Did I? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And oh, you yeah. went to Hopkins. I went to Hopkins. Where you played football. I played football there, played basketball there. Uh, and it was, it was great because, you know, uh, Valley Forge was a two-year school, so I got my associate's degree, and also I got a commission in the Army. So at that time, I was a second lieutenant, so I was also working with a reserve unit down in Maryland while I was finishing up my undergrad experience. Um, but for me, Hopkins was great because, you know, as you said, I, I've only really known two places that I grew up in. One was Baltimore, Maryland, and the other was the Bronx, New York. And for me, going back to Baltimore was kind of a bit of a homecoming. It was, you know, my, my mom was there. A lot of my family members were there. Um, it, was a, it, was a, it was a city that I was comfortable with and that I felt like very much helped raise me. And so the chance to go back to school there uh, was, was, was powerful and unique. And, and I also thought it was powerful because Hopkins wasn't a place that we grew up thinking that we would go to. Right. You know, it was, it was you know, and I guess you would, you would argue that you know, the same relationship like the University of Chicago has with the South Side or, you know, Columbia might have with, 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 with Harlem. Um, it's a type of place where for people who grew up in those communities, we know it's there. 
We know it's a powerful force. We know it buys a lot of real estate in our right. neighborhood. Um, but we don't see many people that actually are students there. Right. Um, that's for the out-of-town kids. Right. Or for the kids who are coming from overseas. Hopkins, Loyola, a couple schools like that there where they're kind of walled, right? There you go. Had you ever been on the campus of Hopkins when you were growing up? Was Never. there a moment where it, no, no seed was planted when you Never. went for a basketball program or for a visit? Never. So the, was the first time you went to, to Hopkins when you were there to visit to be a student? That's exactly right. Wow. And in fact, the neighborhood that Hopkins in, and this is... But how far was it geographically from where you grew up? Miles? Probably... A mile and a half. Wow. A mile and a half, two miles. Wow. And here's the amazing thing. So Hopkins is in this neighborhood. Um, uh, it, it borders this neighborhood called Guilford in Baltimore. And this kind of gives a little bit of history of Baltimore and the complexity of Baltimore, where literally probably up until about two and a half decades ago, uh, in the deed in Guilford, it said, no blacks or Jews. Really? In the deed. On the, like literally in the real estate. It shows kind of the, lo- the level of segregation that exists in Baltimore. And so to understand the history of Baltimore, you have to understand the history of like redlining and how public transportation was actually used to separate people, not connect people. Uh, about, you know, about banks not giving loans to families who wanted to move into certain areas. And I remember when we moved back to Baltimore, um, this was probably about nine years ago now, uh, when I was first talking to my wife, Dawn, who loves Paul, by the way. Um, and I love her. She's amazing. You she, guys she's are awesome. Forced. Yeah, she's You're awesome. surrounded by some pretty incredible women. Amen. Your mother Amen. and Dawn Amen. and your daughter. Yes, yes. Amen. Amen. And um, when we first moved back to Baltimore, because she's from New York, and so we were kind of taking her away from her hometown to bring her back to my hometown. And so she's going through, and I'm like, you know, since you're willing to do that for me, you pick the house. Okay. You pick where we're going to go, and that's where we're going to go. And so she picks up this house. She's looking, and she's like, I think I found it. She sends this link. And I'm like, what neighborhood is it in? Just out of curiosity. And she says, Guilford. And at that moment, I, like, retreated to being a 12-year-old kid again who my mom told me, don't go to Guilford. Wow. Because Guilford wasn't a place for young black kids. Wow. It was a place where if you went, you were going to be harassed. If you went, you would have neighbors call police on you. And I felt like I almost retreated to being that 12-year-old kid again. Mm. And so when she said the words Guilford, I immediately, almost like, just instinctively, I said, we can't go there. Mm. Like I was 12 years old again. Mm. And, um, you know, and I'm, I'm amazed at how it really has become a beautifully diverse neighborhood now, an inclusive neighborhood now. Is that where you ended up living? That's yeah, where you ended yeah, up going. Yeah. Um, but the history. Yeah is so present and undeniable, um, particularly for those of us who had to come up with that as a distinct reality mm. about where we called home. So this is a lot of your story. For folks who haven't read your book, they should. And you've been a champion for the poor, for veterans, for kids trying to go to college. I mean, you are like the guy who punched a hole through the door and is pulling everybody else through it. Like, that's yeah. now your story. Yeah. Um, there's so many different directions I could go with you. And I, I do kind of go back to that 12-year-old point. You said you were 11 when you had handcuffs on you for the first time. Yeah. I think I was 12. Yeah. I haven't talked about this much, but I think I was trying to remember the first time. I remember that when I had handcuffs put on me, I got pressed onto the hood of the cop car, and the hood of the cop car was hot. Oh. 
And the guy, it it goes, it gets worse. So I'm on, I'm pushing on the front of the cop car and he pops me on it again. And at some point, and I was a, I was, I was a pain in the ass. I looked up and I'll never forget this. His name was officer quick. And I saw that on his, and I thought that was really funny. (laughs) And so I just went (laughs) and boogers flew out of my nose on the top of his cop car. And then I knew I was fucked. I was fucked. Then he hit me again, and then he then he pushed me in the back. And but that but that was like one of my very first interactions on the bad side with the police, oh, wow. and was not the last time I was handcuffed growing up. But it was very formative in shaping the way I viewed that entire experience. But I also realized at that point my life could have gone in a lot of different directions. You've had those points so many different times, and you've written about it. There's now going to be a movie about your life. Yeah. What, if you think back to that 12-year-old kid or you think about someone who might be listening right now who's going through hard times, a lot of what you do is motivational work and inspirational work. What's your message to that, to that kid? You know, I, I feel like, damn, you know, I didn't even know that story about you, man. Yeah. Um, I feel like one of the biggest challenges I had at that moment was and I feel like for so many so for so many of us, right, for so many kids in those situations, you feel like you're alone, right? You feel like no one hears you. You feel like no one understands you. You feel like what you're going through, you are completely navigating this thing solo, um, which I think both influences the decisions you make. Um, and I think it also influences the impact that you think your decisions have because you don't understand. You have no context on how this is actually impacting everybody around you. Um, the thing, and I think one of the lessons that, that was really important for me was when I finally got to the point of realizing that not only wasn't I alone at that moment, that I was never alone. Mm. That you have people there who are fighting for you and advocating for you, people who care about you, people who are watching you. Um, people who, frankly, you know, one thing I believe deeply in is, you know, for people who wake up every morning, even if they don't know who you are by name, they wake up every morning with the hope of you. Mm. And the hope of you is enough for them to wake up and fight, Mm. right? I think it's important for every kid, every young person, every person who's navigating this process to know that you are not alone in this. You're part of a much bigger legacy. You're part of a much bigger journey. You're part of a, you, you're part of, 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 a, of a DNA of fight and struggle and victory and loss and victory after that. Mm. And that is enough to keep you going. Mm. Because the most dangerous thing, I think, is when we have people who basically don't feel like there's anything worth fighting for right. anymore. Um, when they feel like there's no one who's willing to fight for them. And I think my mother actually used to say it best when she said, um, kids need to think that you care before they care what you think. And I want all kids to understand that we care. Right. We'll fight. The only thing we're asking is fight with us. Mm. Be our ally in this. Because that's the only way we're going to be able to break through. Mm. So when you were young, were you angry? I was angry. Yeah. I was really angry. Yeah. And if I, if I, you know, this show 
is is about turning that anger into something productive, into something positive, but also recognizing that it's real, it's a truth, it exists, and I think it's warranted. There are plenty of people who have a right to be angry, who should be angry, especially given some of the stuff that's going on in the world and in their communities. Police shootings are a great example of a, a reason why people should be angry, I think. But when I was, you know, 12, 13, 14, for me it was football. Yeah. If I didn't have football, I probably would have ended up in jail or somewhere else. That was the place I could go to kind of channel that. And it was yeah. a place where my coach was a Vietnam vet. He was one of the only black head coaches, I think, in the state at that time. And he turned to me and he said, I'm going to make, I was a freshman. And he said to me, I had long hair and an earring. I was going through a really fucked up time in my life. Mm-hmm. And he said to me, kid, I'm going to make you an all county center. And I was like, I don't want to be a fucking center. <laughs> and I was a hundred and I think I was 175 pounds, 180, wow. maybe, maybe 180 pounds. And he put me at center and he put me across from a guy named Selwyn Camper, who was over 300 pounds, who was getting recruited by Georgia Tech. And he just worked me and beat the hell out of me every day. But I learned and I gained confidence. And he was the first guy who really believed in me mm. and, and told me, you know, there are others who believed in me, but really channeled it and focused it and saw something in me and also kind of set a vision for me. And I ended up being all county as a junior. It happened a couple years later, but he kind of set that goal for me and channeled that anger. So all that is to say, you know, were you, were you angry back then? And, and how do you look at that? And now you have two kids of your own. Yeah. Your son's going to go through that. Your daughter's going to go through that at some point. Do you, do you think about that? All the time, man. And, but, you know, I think, so the answer is, is absolutely I was angry. And, and I think, to your point, I think we had reasons to be. Yeah. Right? I, I think, that, you know, when, 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 when we look at the anger that so many people are feeling, exactly like you said, it was justified. Because we knew, like I knew I grew up in a, in a, in a neglected community. I knew that we didn't have the same thing as other, as other people had. And I knew and I felt in my heart that there was, it was because of conscious decisions. Right. And so I think there was a reason, there was a justification for the anger that we felt. And, you know, I, I think for me, um, one of the big things I think helped to uh, channel that for me, the same way that football did for you, it was, it was actually, it was for me, it was the introduction of leadership. Mm. Uh, and that's where I think, you know, sometimes when people say, well, the military is great because, you know, they make you wake up early and they make you do push-ups and it's discipline. Fine, I guess. But that's not what made the military structure special for me. Mm. What made it special for me was the fact that they actually put me in charge of something. Right. And they made me accountable for something other than myself. Right. And, 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 and I always say it's like the plebe system. I, I, you learn a lot about yourself in plebe system. You learn what you can tolerate and you learn about this brotherhood and all that kind of stuff. The, explain the plebe system. So, for sorry, yeah, so, so the plebe system, uh, where was, it's really it's, it's almost equivalent. Like it's the basic training of military schools. Right. It's, it's when you first start off for us at that time, it was a nine week long process. And they basically cut you off from the outside world. It's no phone calls, no radios, no televisions, no nothing. You're either going to succeed as a team or you will fail as a team and the choice was yours, right? But really what they wanna do is, you know, kind of the whole analogy, which there's actually a lot of truth to it, is they're gonna break you down as an individual so they can build you up as a collective. So you have that sense of responsibility to the person to your left and to your right. Um, Once you complete that plebe system and once they kind of go through that process, relatively early, they're gonna put you in charge of something. And they're going to put you in charge of something small at first, but they're going to put you in charge of it because they want you to feel what it means to be responsible for something. And so, like, they tell me, okay, more, you're in charge of this 
hallway. And if the, if the corridor is clean, we'll congratulate you. If the corridor is dirty, then Lord help you, right? But it was my job. And so if, 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 if Rykoff is part of, my, part of my squad and I see Rykoff, you know, uh, you know, drinking a bottle of water and then throw the bottle on the ground, well, I'm scooping Rykoff up because I'm like, I'm not going to get in trouble because Rykoff can't find a trash can. Right. You know what I'm saying? And so it's like, then they're going to look at that and going to say, all right, more, nice job. Now we're going to promote you. Now you're a squad leader, right? And then you now have these five people you're in charge of in your squad. And if Rykoff is in my squad, if you show up five minutes late for class, the teacher's not going to go to you and say, Rykoff, why are you late? The teacher's going to go to you and say, Rykoff, who's your squad leader? Right. And they're going to come find me. And they're going to say, Rykoff was five minutes late for my class today. Why? Well, I need to have an answer because I'm in charge, right? right? And so then they notice, okay, his squad's doing. Then you get promoted again. So there's this graduated sense of responsibility that and of leadership in the military taught me. The fascinating thing that I don't think I even fully understood until I got older was how paralleled it is with the street. Hmm. Where when people talk about how complicated gangs are and drug culture and all this kind of stuff, when you really think about it, that's not true. They're not complicated. They are basically, they've taken the same formula of every military organization and every Fortune 500 company, uh, Fortune 500 company and they've carbon copied it. Right? It's a hierarchy. It's yeah. a hierarchy. Yeah, yeah. They don't recruit kids to be kingpins. Right? They give you the little job. Mm-hmm. And you're the lookout. And your job is to yell whatever the name of the day is or name of the week is. And they give you that job because if a cop grabs you and you can just simply say, get your hands off me since when is it a crime to yell for my friend? When actually they know what you're doing. You were tipping people off that a cop just entered the area, but you were yelling a name. They're not going to arrest you for yelling names, right? And so they let you go. And then they notice you do that well. It's like, all right, we're going to promote him. Now now he's going to be a runner. He'll move packages from one side of town to another side of town. The reason they recruited us at 9 and 10 and 11 years old is because cops generally don't check 10-year-olds with book bags. Right. Right? And then you do that pretty well. Then you become a cash kid. Then you become a houseman. Then you become muscle. Then you become a lieutenant. It's the same graduated sense of responsibility. And so I think for me, one of the big things that, that, that I got and that the military really gave me was this sense of leadership. Put me in charge of something. Every one of our kids, they want to be recognized. Recognize them. Put them in charge of something small and then let that start to feel good. Let them enjoy that taste. And then they're going to want more. Mm. And so I think that's one of the main things that happened to me. Mm. So you've been shaping the understanding of that for America for going on a decade and a half now, right? Like if people think about Baltimore, for most people... And, and this is probably not everyone, they think of The Wire. Yep. Right? The Wire defined Baltimore in the same way. Amazing show. Boys in the Hood did. South Central. South Central. That's right. right. Or Menace to Society, right? That's right. But there was this period, maybe early 2000s, yeah. where it was being defined. And then Martin O'Malley ran for president. Baltimore is again thrust in, into, the, into the national spotlight. Yep. Um, your and book, while he's running for president, Freddie Gray happens. Right. 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 And now the mayor of Baltimore is out. Everything is again in upheaval. Baltimore is again politically in crisis. Um, You are a son of Baltimore. You know why? When you look when you look at that, what do you see? And everybody wants you to run for mayor. They want you to run for something in Baltimore. But you and I give you credit because you're fixing Baltimore in a lot of ways, frankly, that probably the mayor can't or the mayor won't. But um, 
why not run for mayor of Baltimore? Because I think we all have our path of impact, and I don't think for everybody it needs to be elected office. And particularly, I think it's not just about timing matters, it's purpose matters. Um, where I look at the work we're doing now and both the work within Robin Hood as a poverty fighting organization. And in fact, Robin Hood is now for the first time in the history of the organization, we've, uh, we launched this initiative called Mobility Labs. And really what Mobility Labs is looking at saying, what can you invest in and scale that actually creates sustainable economic mobility for people and communities? And we've picked four communities outside of New York. So can we pause there? Yeah. So, so you, you know, you've, you've kind of, you're, you've graduated out of Baltimore yeah. and now you're on a, a national stage. We had Zainab Salbi on um, recently. She had yeah. been interviewed by Oprah 10 times. You've, yeah. you've, you've sat down with Oprah. Yeah. You've been, you know, a, a national thought leader. You've been on national media. You're shaping the understanding, but you've decided to focus your time as the CEO of Robinhood. Yeah. So for people who may not know what Robinhood is in this phase of your work, can you kind of break that down? Absolutely. Please. So Robinhood, Robinhood is, uh, is uh, now a 31-year-old organization uh, and started with the, uh, with the exclusive poverty New York-based organization uh, and New York-focused organization and, and focused with the exclusive goal of, of fighting and eliminating poverty. Uh, Robinhood initially started off making about $50,000 worth of, worth of grants to poverty-fighting organizations organizations within New York. Uh, now, 31 years later, we've, uh, you know, we've dispensed north of $3 billion in grants. Uh, we currently have about t- over 250 different partners all throughout the city of New York. Um, and, uh, and, you know, really thinking about attacking poverty everywhere, everywhere where it lives. So when people say, well, is it because of education or because of housing or is it because of mental health? Uh, is it because of criminal justice? The answer oftentimes for families and people living in poverty is yes. It's all of it. Mm. Because poverty shows itself in the most traumatic and destructive ways. Every way it can touch you, it will. And so the way that we at Robin Hood really try to attack this problem is attacking it in every single way that it shows itself. Um, and, you know, when I think about this, this work now, you know, even though Robin Hood is, is, a, is a New York-based organization uh, and a New York-focused organization, I think we also collectively understand that poverty is not a New York issue. Right. Uh, and so when we think about this work and part of the, the focus of this idea of mobility labs and this, and this fund that we really built where we are working in northeast Pennsylvania like Scranton, Wilkes-Barre, uh, suburban Chicago, the Bay Area, and Baltimore, it's really about saying if things are working in Brooklyn or Queens or, or, or the Bronx, it's our job to share that. It's our job to push that out and to make sure other communities can learn and benefit from it. And if things are working in Baltimore, if things are working in Pittsburgh, California, if things are working in Scranton, I want to know about it. Because I want to know what are they doing there that's working, that we can actually make sure that we are addressing the problem that we're all fundamentally trying to fix on a holistic basis. And so that's really how the work of this work of Robin Hood really coincided with, you know, just a personal life mission. And then also thinking about what can we do organizationally to be more aggressive, to be creative, to continue to, uh, to compound upon the success that Robin Hood has shown itself, but to do it and to do it with a, with a continued uh, 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 you know, assertion that we can actually beat this thing. 
mm-hmm. if we're deliberate about it. But you, you can, you're, you're part of my kind of superheroes friends network, <laughs> right? My super friends network. And, and so many folks have come on here and talked about the, the, the dragons they're looking to slay. Yeah. And you have decided you're going to take on poverty. Yep. Right? Like that is a massive enemy, a massive challenge, a yeah. massive riddle. And that's where you're, you're, you're dedicating your life. Yeah. And you're doing it in New York on this big stage, which, you know, especially right now with Trump as, as president, with Gillibrand running for president, which with de Blasio running for president, New York has is, is become this stage, if you will, yeah. for the good and the bad. If you yeah. do it right here, if you screw it up here, everybody's going to know about it, right? right. But, but when you look at the environment you're operating in, um, we've got a, a president that, that doesn't seem to care about poverty. Maybe I'm wrong. Correct me if I'm wrong. No. But, but when you look out at the global environment and the environment with this guy as president, I just want to let you go. Like, what do you think? Yeah, you know, when you wake up in the morning and, and you, you analyze the situation about this moment we're in in history, what are your thoughts, Wes? You know, the, 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 the thing that, that actually does break my heart in one way is I wish I could just pin it on one person. I wish I could just pin it on one administration. I wish I could just pin it on one party. I wish I could. I wish poverty was that easy. But the truth is, is that when we're talking about the, quote, war on poverty that we're currently experiencing, that, by the way, uh, you, know, uh, we, I, you know, we did hear that, you know, I guess about a year back, the Trump administration declared that we'd won. So right. Like, congratulations. I didn't realize right. that. Right. Yeah. Um, we won in Iraq, too, I think. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which we just keep winning. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, I wish it was so simple to say that it was his fault, her fault, their fault, this and that. We have had completely sporadic and consistent and inhumane policies that have created the conditions that exist right now that has spanned decades, right? So whether, it, whether we're talking about uh, the, you know, the, the way we, we treated education inside of the 1980s and tax policies, whether it was the way we treated criminal justice policies in the 1990s, whether it was the way we continue to attack uh, social, basic social safety nets that are simply there to help our most vulnerable survive, the way, we, the, the way we can be so quick to question the value of basic needs. We've had this attack on people living in poverty that has gone on and that has spanned administrations, political parties, political ideologies, and so part of the way that I think I, part of the way that I know I attack it, the way that Robin Hood attacks it, is we do not have consistent allies in this fight. We have consistent people who we will fight for. We have consistent people who we will advocate for. We have consistent people that we will, anyone who we believe is putting together frameworks or policies or practices that are hurting the most vulnerable and hurting their probability or possibility of being able to move out of poverty, we'll come after you. Mm. And we'll be vocal and we'll let you know. Mm. And for those who we think are actually being thoughtful and aggressive and progressive and, 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 and kind, kind about the way we're looking at basic humanity, we'll celebrate you. Mm. There's, there's, there's a powerful kind of parallel and irony in this in that you know it's been called a war on poverty but we've kind of fought it 
in some of the same ways we fought the war on terror or forever. They're both kind of a forever war where we've kind of half-assed it. We've never really mobilized the country. We've never really had a strategy. We've never been able to define victory. And now we've got a guy in you leading the war on poverty who has actually been in war, who's actually thinking about it strategically. You're using language like attacking yes. poverty, right? I mean, there's been, it's kind of been like we've been playing patty cake with poverty for the last right. generation. So now you have an opportunity to kind of sharpen that and refine that. But when you think about your leadership, and I have looked to the post 9-11 generation, especially the veterans, for leadership. I think they're not the only folks, but they're bringing unique leadership. If totally you look great. at Mayor Pete, as, as an example, totally he's, he's talking about his service and how it shaped his worldview. Tulsi Gabbard's doing the same. Seth Moulton's doing the same. And now they're on the aggressive. They're, they're, they're being aggressive with Trump, yeah. saying not only did that shape us, but it didn't shape you. It shaped yeah. you for the negative. So I, I want to pull you out of just poverty yeah. and, and ask you, when you look at the country, where are we, Wes, in your view? Because you're, you're, you're more than almost anybody I know, you're uptown and downtown. Yeah. You're in the White House and you're in the streets. Yep. You know, you're out in homeless shelters and then you sit down with Jay-Z. Yep. This week, Jay-Z became a billionaire. Yeah. Right? And I saw your Instagram posts celebrating. That's a, that's a guy you know. Like, so, so you're in a lot of different worlds. Yeah. Where are we as a country? And, and what, what do you see in the future? You know, it's interesting because when um, people will ask me, they're like, how do you stay hopeful and optimistic in all this? Um, Because I'm a data guy. I like data. I like numbers. And I feel like data adds context, but it's humanity humanity that promotes action. Um, And the data can be harrowing, right? The data is showing that even for people who are able to you know, and let's just take poverty, for example, people that are able to move out of poverty, that 34% of them are back in poverty within a year, right? The data shows that even though we have seen market advances and market advancements is that we still have communities that are being completely left behind. The wealth gap between, you know, between African-Americans and others continues to grow. The wealth gap between women and men continues to grow. Right. So we're watching data that should be keeping all of us up at night. But when people say what keeps you hopeful is the fact that, you know, I don't live in statistics. I live in communities. Right. I, 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 I wake up every day and I spend time with that mom who had to wake up at 530 in the morning to be able to get her child to school on time so she can make her first job. I wake up, every, you know, wake up every morning and spend time with the guy who's either returning home from combat or the guy who's returning home from Rikers, mm. who's just trying to make a way as they make that transition back home. I wake up every day and I spend time with the grandmother who is now raising five of her grandchildren on her own, not living the retirement that she once thought that she was going to live but just trying to make a way for these kids who without her would be thrusted into a foster care system. So, so given all that, I ask this of all my guests, Wes Moore, what makes you angry? You know, I'm gonna be very specific on this one. Um, marijuana laws make me angry. Marijuana laws, because I think it's a, it's, 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 it's a perfect example of just how backwards, how racist and preju- prejudicial, and how lazy 
policy is and how it can have distinct impacts on our community. You know, first of all, not to not to mention the fact that you know the the, the antiquated marijuana laws that we have inside this country. And and listen, and you've been one of the most thoughtful and vocal advocates for this, and I thank you for it. But the way we have had this 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 legal barrier around access to something that actually has real purposeful medicinal benefits for people that need it. You know, I, you know, I, I, I know doctors. Right who will sit there and say, if a, if a person is dealing with everything from, everything from seizures to migraines to et cetera, who will actually you know, not just recommend but also prescribe medicinal marijuana. I don't know a single doctor that would prescribe someone to go grab a bottle of Jack Daniels right. or to go eat Pop-Tarts. Right, right. But those are legal. Right. So this isn't a conversation about health benefits. Right. It's a it's 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 an, it's an ideological conversation and one that has been an ideological conversation that has not been baked in fact for a very long time. But the other thing that really gets me about marijuana laws and what makes me angry is the fact that we also can have a conversation about the benefits of legalization while, while forget completely forgetting about the consequences of criminalization. You know, over the past, over a 10 year period between the years of 2001 and 2010, we locked up over seven million people for possession of marijuana charges. Seven million people for possession of marijuana, right? Now over half of the states in the United States right now, uh, you now have access to marijuana, either medicinal, medicinal or recreational, right? But we still have people walking around who are either A, still sitting in prison, or B, walking around with criminal records for something that is now in over half the states you have open and legal access to. How does that make sense? People who come back home and are still now having to check boxes for something that is now a burgeoning multi-billion dollar industry. It's just a perfect example of how these kind of policies continue to create levels of disparity, levels of frustration, and levels of disillusionment. You know, if I'm a person who's coming back home, and let's say I'm now home on, on, a, on possession charges, they'll say, you know what, hey, you know, welcome back, congratulations, but by the way, um, you can't live in public housing, even if your family's there. Right. You know, or, you know, you know, you can absolutely apply for certain jobs. Remember, certain jobs you don't even have access to. And even jobs you might have access to, you got to check boxes. Despite the fact that 75% of people who have to check boxes will not complete the application because psychologically they've already been eliminated. And you can apply to some schools. Remember, you got to check a box for that. And even if you get accepted to certain schools, you can't apply for Pell Grants and other state loans. So they're basically telling you, welcome home, but we're going to put a whole bunch of asterisks next to your name. And by the way, it's a scarlet letter. So every sentence becomes a life sentence. And by the way, for marijuana, it becomes even more ridiculous because you can have people who in this burgeoning marijuana industry and, and, and legal cannabis industry, if you have a marijuana charge in most states, you can't apply for a job in the industry. Right. So I could, I could, I could be coming out of prison for assault. I could be coming out of prison for theft. I could be coming out of prison for sexual assault. And I can get a job in the cannabis industry. But God forbid if you have a charge that deals with cannabis. Yeah. These type of things are so backwards. And so when I think about the things that make me angry, it's the fact that we're not even being thoughtful about it. We're not even trying to be thoughtful about it. And so my big push and, and, and you know, the way I deal with my anger is activism. Right. 
I want my anger to trigger the fact that you cannot have a conversation about the benefits of legalization unless you're also willing to deal with the consequences of criminalization. And both of those two things happen to happen, have to happen simultaneously. There's a, a lot to unpack there. It's very powerful. And that's going to be a section of this podcast that I hope people go back and listen to a couple times and share yeah. with other people because you broke it down in a way that I think is very, very important and powerful. But there's a racial disparity here. Huge. That you didn't even touch. Yeah. Right? So can you break that down? Because I'll, I'll, I'll share with you and with the audience, most of my family knows this. I've been arrested for marijuana possession. And... There's a longer story. I could probably do an entire podcast on this. But when I was arrested, I was with a group of friends. I was the only white guy. Mm. And we all went into the same process. We were all generally educated. But there was a night where the NYPD later told us flat out they were going to do a walkout to play kind of a, a, a power move on behalf of the union. They wanted to fill the jails up on, on a busy night and then walk out. And, and the COs walked out, many of the cops walked out to basically say, hey, look, you need us, okay? Mm -hmm. So it was a night when they were sweeping up people with minor marijuana possessions, and we got swept up in it. And there were a couple of moments that I'll always remember, and maybe this will go in the next book, but there was a point where we were in the jail, we were in the tombs here in, in Manhattan, and there were a lot of young kids in there, almost all kids of color. You know, I was one of the only white guys in there, okay? And you could hear the kids talking to each other and to us and they say, they say, take the plea and you go home right now. Right. Stay and you're going to be here two more days, maybe three days. I think it was a Friday night. So they filled us up and then they keep you over the weekend. So if you take the plea, say, you know what? Yes. Now the dude said, to, one kid said to me, you know, I sit on the same stoop every day. The cop rolls by, he sees me smoke a joint every single day. Today he popped me. I don't know why. And we later found out why, because there was an actual coordinated effort happening across the city that night and they all got swept in it. But there was a powerful negotiation where the kids were talking to each other and talking to us and talking to other couple people who were in there at that time where, you know, the public defender would come in and say, kid, you know, take the plea. And the kid would say, it's my second one. It's my third one. This is going to mark me. And, and the lawyers, most of them don't give a shit. They're just churn churning people through. And lawyer comes up to me, looks at me and says, take the plea. I said, fuck you. I'm not taking the plea. No. I'm fighting this. Yeah. And he said, why? I said, look up at me, man. I'm educated. I know the deal. I know my rights. You know, I'm going to get my own damn lawyer. Yeah. The other kids take that advice and they get branded and they get marked. And we tried to actually organize a couple of these kids to wait it out because some of them were looking at their third offense. Yeah. Right. But I share that story in part because I want people to know um, how often it happens. And I think unless you've been on the inside of that or in different viewpoints, maybe you're in law enforcement, maybe you work in the legal system, you don't see how that happens. But there's an entire generation of young people, mostly men, mostly people of color, right. who are marked That's right. and will forever be marked until this is unwound, right? But can you, all that is to say, can you break it down from a data standpoint Yes. and, and tell us how stark that difference is? Because I know flat out, I was, I was in a position of privilege. At one point, the lawyer didn't even look at me. And I, he looked up at me, and I saw that moment where he, where he recognized I was white. He looked at me, and, and I, I looked at him, and I said, dude, what do you, uh, no. I was like, get me a real fucking lawyer. That's right. And he said, okay. And then he turned on the next kid, the next kid, the next kid. But how deep is that cleavage that exists in America, and for how long has it gone on? And you, and, and you, you knew your rights. Yeah. 
And that also is one of the biggest disparities. Like, you know, when we talk about- I didn't have it in my hand. I didn't have it in my hand. I had passed it to someone else. Right. And, you know, we went through this whole discussion. Were we in a doorway? This was a time where you could smoke weed in a doorway mm-hmm. in New York City, but you couldn't do it on the street. Yeah. Right. And then it was how much you had or didn't have. We could do, again, a whole podcast series just on this. But, but the facts, Wes. Yeah. Like, are, are, I know you know them better than I could ever possibly. Oh, yeah. but, well, no. And like, when, we, when we talk about broken systems within our society, it, it's tough for me to find one that is actually more broken than our criminal justice system. Mm. You know, and, and, and you know, let, so let's just, let's just take, you know, let's unpackage, you know, with this, that story right there, right? And let's just take one reality. And New York City alone, there are about 300,000 arrests every single year in New York City. Less than 1% of people at the time of arrest have an attorney. Right. This is a basic Sixth Amendment right. One of the we're talking the Bill of Rights here. Right. The first ten, the Sixth Amendment, basic rights. Right. And so what happens when a person is arrested? They know, and we all know statistically, that if your first phone call is not either to an attorney or to a family member who can put you in touch with an attorney, your chances of conviction have just risen by seventy-five percent. 75%. 75%. Your chances of conviction have just risen if your first phone call is either not to an attorney or to a family member. I mean, one of the platforms that actually Robin had invested in and built and created was a platform called Good Call, which is basically a, it's, it's, it's a hotline. It's using technology, a telephonic technology, to be able to address this disparity because what it allows people to do is make a singular phone call and it does two things. One, it puts you in touch with a family member. So your family knows who you are, which is a huge issue because sometimes you'll have people who are sitting in, sitting in jails for two and three days and their family members have no idea where they are. Yeah. And the second thing it does, it puts you in touch with a public defender. And, and, they, and, and Good Call has actually gotten the tech, technology now down to it, the connection time is 38 seconds. Wow. And so what it does is when you have a public defender, by definition, you now have a lawyer. Because you have a lawyer, the questioning stops. Right. They can no longer question you. They have to work through your right, attorney. Right. Right. But you're absolutely right. The problem is we have this cash. They move bail on to someone else. And they move on to somebody else. But we have this yeah. cash bail system that yeah. exists within our society where we have people who, you know, even if the average bail is, 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 is you know, $500 or $600, $700, you know, 45% of people in this country cannot afford a $400 emergency right now. Right. A $400 emergency. So if I get arrested and I get picked up, regardless of what it's for, and my bail is set for $600, well, if I'm like pretty much the majority of Americans, particularly the majority of Americans who fall into the situation where if you come in and if you're living in a low-income community, if you're living in a black or brown community that are increasingly and, and, and notoriously over-policed, I'm going to sit there because I don't have the money for bail. And so what does that mean? Then I will get someone to say to me, listen, just take a plea, man. Just take a plea to let you go home. And so I say, you know, listen, I, I have to get home because I've got to get back to my job. Or I've got to go pick up my kids. Or I don't want to get in trouble in school. I can't miss more school. So I said, I'll take Or I'm sick of eating bologna sandwiches and exactly. there's no air conditioning here. And this guy over here might punch me in my face. Exactly. Yeah. Right. I don't want to be here. I didn't, yeah, yeah. Whether or not, you know, regardless of the crime, here. I don't feel safe I don't feel here. Safe I don't, here. don't want to be yeah. here. So I'll yeah. take the plea. Yeah. What most people then don't know, though, is congratulations, sir or ma'am, you now have a criminal record. Yep. You just took the off-ramp into a different life. Into a completely different life. Yep. Whether you understood what that meant or not. Yep. If you look at drug policies, and here's where race comes in, because you cannot talk about this without understanding the implications of race. Right. And how race has played into the criminal justice system that we have in play right now. 
take drug use. Drug use is, is pretty evenly distributed percentage-wise and, 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 and a full basis when it comes to you know, whites, blacks, Latinos, Asians, et cetera. Pretty much evenly, even usage. The arrest rate for African-Americans when it comes to marijuana possession, four times. Wow. Difficult to explain how someone, it could be the equal level of usage, but it's a four times higher chance you're gonna be arrested for something. So we don't have a colorblind criminal justice system. We don't have a colorblind society. We have a society that when you look at the data and you look at the numbers, the way it deals with people of color, the way it deals with people in poverty, it's not even close. Hmm. It's not even close. You know, uh, you know, Brian Stevenson says something uh, in, you know, he's, he's a good friend. He he's said, amazing. He's amazing. Folks are listening. If you don't know who Brian Stevenson is, look him up. Watch Please. his TED Talks. Yes. He's absolutely groundbreaking he and is one of the most important voices i hope i hope you join me on the show maybe you can help me make that happen i, I would but love he, to help make that happen because he's an, an important incredible voice. voice but please he is please. no but he has this line where he yeah. say you know we have a criminal justice system where where you know where you you would you would rather you would rather be you know innocent you rather be guilty and rich than innocent and poor 100 percent. yeah and it's crazy when you think about that and since we cannot we cannot talk about class without talking about race in this country. Well, and we can't talk about race without talking about the president. Yeah. So what, what do you think, man? Like this is like, like this week, Barack Obama was at the Toronto Raptors game and got a standing ovation by 40,000 people. Yeah. And our president is being protested with hundreds of thousands. Um, and you know, the presidential candidates have, have attacked him as racist. The, the race is an issue now already but it's compounded by a president that seems entirely at best tone deaf to issues of race yeah how do how do we how do we as activists deal with that assuming he's there for another year and a half right let's just assume that is the case yeah how do you and how do we talk about race without talking about him and his behavior and his perception and his leadership which is often for the negative with regard to race. Well, I, and I think, I think it's, it's, it's impossible not to because I think even some of the things that we've seen, uh, you know, whether they be some of the policies that have, uh, that have done nothing besides, you know, except for continue to, continue to increase that, that, you know, the race wealth gap, for example, yeah. or the basic dog whistling that's taking place. Um, but the truth is, and I think Dave Chappelle actually said it best once when he said, um, Donald Trump didn't create the waves. He's just a great surfer. That's right. You know, and I think the thing that all of us as, as activists, there's two things we have to do. We have to, over the next year and a half, make sure we can push back on every, in every way and every time that we see it. And again, that it's not even just a, a Trump administration thing. I'm, I'm very clear. I will go after anybody, regardless of political party, if I feel like the, both the policies that you are pushing and or the language you are using are going to impact communities that I care deeply about and love. The other thing that I know, though, is come a year and a half, let's not forget about the things that actually put, made the Trump administration a reality. And if that's the thing that we want to go after, let's make sure that we're not forgetting that. When people talk about it, it's the voters who switched and went from President Obama to President Trump or the voters of the United States. Is there a portion of that? Absolutely. But you know what we also had? We had a sharp decrease in voter turnout, particularly amongst African-American voters. 
And so if you look at why it, it wasn't like the biggest difference between, you know, what happened in the election numbers in 2016 and 2012 or 2016, and 2008, it wasn't just about voters who moved. It was about the Obama coalition actually got people out to vote. Mm. So when you're watching the reality of, uh, of literally tens of thousands of people in certain communities and states, battleground communities, battleground states, who just didn't come out and vote, we have to make sure we're reminding people of the urgency of making your voice heard. You know, you, you talk about something, Paul, that I think is, is actually a, an incredibly powerful idea. You know, we have to make sure we are protecting people's rights to vote. Voter suppression is real. And making sure that we are encouraging people, keeping people on rolls, but also making it easier for people to actually get out and vote. So does that mean early voting? Yes. You know, the, the idea that, that I've heard you bring up, which I think is a, is a brilliant idea, of the idea of saying, you know, why not make Election Day Veterans Day? Yeah, yeah. Make that, make that a gift that veterans can give to the American people. Yep. Where it's like, you know, it's, it's, it, we're not, so when we're, if we make Election Day a holiday, essentially, we're not asking for an additional day. Now, veterans have offered, and this, this came, you know, from an idea that circulated in the veterans community, and I had a, a powerful conversation with Norman Lear, who's a World War II veteran. Mm. And, you know, he really pegged it and said, you know, as World War II veterans, we can donate our day. The ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate piece of patriotism would be to give up our day so people can actually honor veterans by voting. That's right. And for people who don't have a day off of work or a day off of school and combine the two, right. right? Basically combine it. And, and you know, it's a, it's a double whammy for patriotism, right? Yes. I think it's a, it's a powerful idea. I think it's a common sense idea. We're hoping that somebody will introduce legislation soon to actually make it a reality. I think most veterans will support it, but it, it can be the final act of patriotism from the greatest generation yes. for them to give up a day that they really propelled forward and now at some point it's just going to be you know empty parades and small numbers we're going to go from 12 percent of the population to less than one percent of the population mm. so the parades are going to be like relics but they could be channeled into something tectonically powerful which yes. would be to let everybody vote more easily right? and, and you but, know i think it would also it would also be really powerful to as if we need more reminders, but remind people of what was sacrificed in order for you to have the right to have your voice right. heard. Right. You know, I, sense I, of history. We, we sense need of that history, sense of history. Man. Yeah. And yeah. I think about it where it's like, I, I, I think about the remarkable people in my background who gave everything so I could have a place at the table. Right. Like, you know, I, I can't help but think about people who I don't just admire and reveal revere, but I, I look to with a sense of awe. Like, you know, people, you know, I, I think about people like Harriet Tubman and Paul Robeson and people who Ida B. Wells, people who I just think about and love and admire because they loved me before there was a me. Mm. And I'm now able to live a life that, that they only could dream about, and not for themselves, but they could only dream that their sacrifices would make a way that their, their leaders, their legacy would actually be able to enjoy, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I love this idea of, you know, I am my ancestors' wildest imagination. 
I am their wildest dream. When I think about the ability that I have to be part of a larger system that they pushed and prodded and provoked to be better, to live up to its highest ideals. And so who would I be if now that I have a chance to shape the future, to do what all of them did for me, and if I just pass and say, I'm good, as if these things don't have implications. Right. And if there's anybody who believes that, we can just look at, you know, and, and, and if you want to just forget about looking at the past year and a half, look at the past six months, the right. past four weeks. Elections have consequences. And so for us to simply say that we are too busy or for us not to fight for voting rights to make sure that we are restoring the rights of people who should have the legal right to make sure their voices are heard, if we're not protecting that with everything in us, we are dishonoring everyone that came before us mm-hmm. and everything that they did and had to sacrifice and give up in order for us to live these lives. That's our job. And so that's what I ask every advocate to do. Go out and fight your fight. Go out and run your lane. Go out and do whatever, whatever it is that you're doing. But never forget, there's certain core basic issues that every single one of us as Americans had better be focused on going forward. We'd better be focused on the census. Census 2020. We had better be focused on election 2020. You would better be focused on making sure that people's rights are heard and people's voices are being recorded. That's what we should be focusing on. Well, and anyone focused on this interview is going to be inspired by hearing from you. And from the very first episode with Willie Geist, <laughs> we started talking about you running at some point for president. <laughs> and you, I, I said more in 24 sounds pretty good. And maybe Willie Geist could be your, your running mate. There's a lot of <laughs> folks that have been on the show could be your running mate. I'm not going to ask you if, if you will run one day but i will tell you that i hope you run one day and i know that many people hope you run one day and especially in a year like this when the field is so broad and in some ways so thin um there is there is a lack of true inspiration and i think that's part of what mayor pete has has kind of captured and trump does on the other side but more than anybody i know um, people talk about you one day running for president. And more than anybody I know, I think you could do it. And I just, I don't expect you to respond because you're very diplomatic, but I want that to be known here because I think you're the first person that's been on this show that one day could do it. Um, well, I'm, I'm, that means more than you know, particularly coming from you, man. And, 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 I, and, I, and I say it with all sincerity, a person who I'd, I'd follow anywhere. Um, and that's the thing I, I believe with all of us in, in, in the work that we do, right? It, it's like, do your job well now. Focus on doing what you're doing right now. Yeah, but also understand, ability. I'm going to do something they never do on TV, which is interrupt you, yeah. right? And, and, and tell you that, that I'm also going to push you, right? And you, just like yeah. you push me and our friends push us, yeah. especially at this moment in time, you know, I think you are doing incredible work. You're making more of a difference than anybody I know. But the response that I know we will get from this interview of people from all backgrounds is like nothing I've seen. You have an impact on people that is like nothing I've ever seen in anyone, including Barack Obama. I have been around him, I have met him. 
he's not everybody's cup of tea. <laughs> Sometimes he can be a little difficult for people. Others, of course, adore it. But when you're around him, he's, he's got a magic that I think is like something we've never seen. I think Michelle actually has more magic. She's amazing. Right? When you're she's around her. Amazing, yeah. But then there is the magic of Wes Moore that most of America hasn't seen yet. But I know will in the next couple of years. So I got to ask you, uh, what's up with the movie? <laughs> what, there, there will be a movie about your life. There is, yes. That's coming. What yeah. can you tell us about the movie and what can people look forward to? So, uh, so the, 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 the other Westmore was optioned by, uh, by uh, HBO and, and also Oprah Winfrey, um, who was serving as executive producer. And, you know, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm really thankful because, as you know, man, it's like when you go through this process, people will pitch different ideas. And, oh, we want to do this. And I remember, and, and you know the story, Paul, but someone actually came and pitched to me, make it into a comedy. Yeah, don't like, don't do that. That's, I was like, I'm sorry. You could if you could do anything you want, but like, but you know, but I, I and I and I think the thing that really uh, why I became so excited about, particularly with this team, and it's an it's a remarkable team that's working on it, um, is they're like for the messages that you want to share and for the things you want to get out. They're like, not everyone has or 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 just be honest will pick up your book, All right? Um, so you got to find new ways of reaching them. You got to find new ways of getting the messages and the stories out. And, and I think one of the root things that I really love about the frame in which they're, you know, they're talking about the film, um, it's they, we want to not necessarily just retell the story of the book, but we want to dig more into the nuance of this relationship between two guys who share a whole lot more than just a name. Uh, but on the surface, uh, it's helping people to understand just how thin that line is between us and somebody else. But it'll also redefine, probably for a generation in some ways, what it means to be American. Yeah. Like we, we are going through this period where we're continuing to examine McCain's story. Yeah. Right? These stories of great Americans. Now when Obama's gone, people miss him. But they, you know, a similarity is that they're the great American success story. Yeah. We've had a lot of folks on this show that have defined what it means to be American. I think your film, when, when, will, when do you think it'll be out? Uh, next year? We're hoping, yeah. Okay, so hoping. next for many people, especially young people, it could help define, and maybe more importantly even, for outside of America. Yeah. Right? There, right? There aren't too many you know, recent great success stories. So I'm excited about that. I Thank think it you. will help define for many people what it means to be American. Thank I have, a, I, I know your time is short. I have a, a okay. final question for you. What's something Westmore that makes you happy? The water, the water, the water. Um, I would say about four years ago, I got a boating license which is kind of crazy because, and Dawn always laughs because she's like, <laughs> she's like, you're the most daggone outdoorsy, woodsy person I've ever seen ever raised in the city of Baltimore before. <laughs> she's like, where did that even come from? The fact that you like going out hiking and like hunting and fishing and da 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 da. And I think part of it was the exposure that I got through the military. One of the things that you're I in the 82nd Airborne, exactly. That's that's where you in the are, woods. right? Yeah. I mean, you're in you're in Bragg, you're in Benning, you're in whatever, and and you're and you're around people who that's just how they grew up. Right. And I think I gained a real, you know, I gained a passion for it. But when I when I think about what is a perfect day for me, it's with my wife and my kids on a boat on calm water and just going. And just seeing where the waves will take you. It's the perfect day for me. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. 
I feel the same way about the water. There is a tremendous peace and tranquility and serenity about it. Um, And a perfect day has also been sitting down with you. And uh, it would not be more perfect without our traditional ceremony of giving of the gifts. (laughs) So I see Jones is giving me the eye like we're way over time. (laughs) But... uh, this has Thank been an you. incredible. This is a tradition. You have to open it now. President so Moore. <laughs> it's a it's a giant bag with a with an elephant on it, because uh, I was looking for a bag at my house, and elephants are powerful, and my son loves elephants, and so that's on the outside. You got. And then each week we give a. Uh, oh my god. Well, first you have the IVA. Sorry, I said IVA. Oh my sorry. gosh, the Angry American Swag. <laughs> which is made in America by uh, veterans. I now I have two it. sizes in there. I have one for you in both styles. These are on angryamericans.us. I also have shirts for Brian Jones. For those who don't know, Brian Jones is like a combination of your, like, he's like Sorensen and Reggie Love <laughs> and Rahm Emanuel and like all these things in I one. I met him through you. And, and he's an incredible American he is. who is on your team he is. and I will not miss an opportunity to salute you sir when you are off camera and out of, <laughs> out of earshot but the first gift is uh, each time I pick a, a specific American whiskey that speaks to me I walk into the liquor store and say alright what is for my guest this week and I'm going to put the mic over there so people can uh, hear it uh, Jack Daniels Gentleman Jack now I didn't want to go with something overly expensive or overly <laughs> fancy you are a gentleman. You are the ultimate gentleman. You're a man of taste. You're well-traveled. You're well-educated. And I think, therefore, you will appreciate that Jack Daniels Gentleman Jack is really good. It is like, really good. I really like it. It's and, really good. And, and you're such a gentleman it is really that good. I felt I must give that to you. I appreciate and, uh, it. And it's so funny, actually. Hey, earlier Jones, in the interview. <laughs> you are, uh, Jones is off, is off camera. If you're, if you're listening, you can go to the Angry Americans website and see the video. Jones, can you look in and wave to the camera? There's Jones, also a post-9-11 veteran. And I got Jones. Uh, Jones is a great guy, by the way. So Jones, Jones is, is a, uh, is a uh, uh, grew up in Harlem, ends up, ends up enlisting in the Marines. Yes. Uh, and he gets the baby gentleman, Jack. Can yeah. you show the camera? You get, because you're, Cheers. you're, you know, you're on the team. You're learning from, from the Jedi. You know, we know one day, Jones, I want to get you in this chair and That's have right. another conversation with you. And I hope you run for office. Yes. I hope you run for yes. mayor of New York because yes. we need a damn good mayor. And you have an incredible story that we can dig into another time. But I couldn't get you a full bottle, Jones. I had to get you a, a baby bottle. Well, this is beautiful. You're the, first, you're the first person off camera and off audio to ever get a bottle. But you get it because you're my friend and, and, and my uh, fellow veteran and activist. And, and Wes, no team, no, no leader is, is, uh, is successful without a team. Amen. And you built a great team Amen. that includes Brian and your family and so many people in your extended network. Um, Same about you, and, brother. Oh, oh and got I got last too. question well, for you. This, is, this has been, yes. So every guest this entire season, we've had pink, yellow, and blue peeps. And we ask, what, which one do you choose and why? Um, you know, I am actually going to go with, uh, I'll go with the pink, um, because it is my daughter's favorite color. And, uh, and so in fact, she actually just had a, uh, uh, a dance recital. She's really into dance now and she's, she's really good. And I'm, I know I'm totally impartial, uh, <laughs> but, uh, 
But, you know, when, uh, as she ends up going, doing her performance, she ended up getting her flowers for her performance, and we got her this, you know, kind of this, you know, bouquet of, of, uh, of, of pink roses, and she just kept on talking about how beautiful the roses were and how much she, how much she loves her, uh, her, uh, her color pink, so... So Pink Peeps is the choice of Westmore. Pink now peeps. that I gave uh, Jones a little bit of liquor, I think that gives me another, another question. Um, <laughs> so I can't let you go. We could talk sports. Oh, we yeah. could talk music. Mm-hmm. We could talk a lot of different things. But, but Father's Day is coming up. Yeah, man. Can you talk about parenting for a second? Because you're one of the best dads I know. Oh, Dawn is one of the best moms I know. You guys have been like parental role models for me and Lauren as we raise our kids. But um, as Father's Day comes, do you have a message for parents or for children? And, you know, you, 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 I think I, I'm excited to hear you find formats where you can talk about more than poverty. Yeah. And I hope maybe this show and the other projects I do will be a place where we can expand on I sports and parenting and culture and music because they're all intersectional, I think, in so many ways. But yeah. Um, but but dad advice, man. You give it to me all the time. You have any yeah. dad advice? You know, I um, or parenting advice. You know, I, I, I there was nothing, and I think partially because you know I didn't I didn't grow up with my dad. Um, there was nothing in life that I think I looked forward to more than being a dad, right? Um, and I'll never forget the moments when both of our kids were born. Like you know what that was like and what that moment was like. And it's just something that just always will just sit with you in the most peaceful place in you. That's where it sits. That's where that memory sits. Um, and I, and I like studied this. I would, you know, read books on it, talk to people like, what, what's good advice? Da, 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 da. Um, one thing that I, I think I, I've learned and realized um, about parenting and about just being a dad is the best piece of advice that I can give people is going to be, it's twofold. One is you've got to make sure that you are creating the flow that works for you and your family. Uh, don't worry about meeting an expectation on what this person does or what that person does. You need to find what works best for you and your family that gives you all peace. If it's not what other people know or understand, that's okay. It's mm. not their life to live. Mm. Nor should you ever have to, you know, justify rituals, traditions, consistencies that you have within your family. Find what works for you and your family and your children and embrace that and love it for everything that it is. You know, one of the other things, though, um, and I understand that not everyone's in the same situation that both of us are in, where, you know, we, we're, we're not only, you know, uh, uh, we not only love our children, but we also are in love with our best friends, which mm. are our wives. Mm. And so I understand that's not everybody's situation, mm. but, but um, the thing I would ask people to do, though, is the best way to take care of your children is to take care of their mother or father, mm. right? Um, when people, you know, and it's, it's one, it's a piece of advice I give to every single new dad when they're like, you know, what should I, you know, what should I do? What should I do? Um, and my first piece of advice to them is always make sure their mom is okay. Hmm. Because if that isn't work, if something there isn't set right, don't think that your child won't feel it, hmm. won't experience it and won't internalize it. Hmm. You make sure that their other parent or guardian or, or parental figure Make sure that they're good. Mm. Because if you're doing that more than anything else and more than you realize it, you're taking care of your kids. Mm. That's the best way to take care of them is by making sure that the other people in their life 
in their, in, in their lives uh, are okay. That's good advice, man. That's good advice. Somebody gave me a really good piece of advice about parenting once that said, ask other parents for their advice. That's and that's a, a question advice. I want to use in this show in the future. But when my wife was pregnant with our first and second, you know, I'd say, oh, my wife is pregnant. So oh, congratulations. And I say, are you a parent? And he'd say, yeah, yeah, yeah. You got any advice? Like, I asked everybody. I asked cab drivers, random people on the subway, like yes. traveling across the country. Around the, I was you know, traveling around the, around the globe. And I would ask people. And everybody had something. Yes. And it was just this additive effect. Yes. That was really, really helpful. For me as a parent, as, a, as, a, you know, as someone who was also that excited about being a dad, yes. that was the thing I was more excited about than anything else in my life. And you, and you, you take certain things and you incorporate them. Not everything, but you yeah, take certain true. things. I, I remember one piece of advice, uh, and I know you're trying to get off the air, so I'll, I'll, no, I'll, I'll wrap I up. Could talk to, we could do Joe Rogan style and talk for three hours, but Jones, uh, Jones is over there shaking his head going, uh-uh, he's got to go, he's got to go, he's late for sitting down with Jay-Z to celebrate him becoming a billionaire. Do you get to go to that party? Do you get to go to Jay-Z's like, I'm a billionaire party? No. There I, is a party, I, I, I right? I'm, I'm, I'm sure You've there is. You've been to some interesting parties. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and they're, def, they're definitely, those are, those are uh, podcast conversation po- parties and not necessarily network conversation parties. Yes. Yes. But, I, but I tell you, one, pe- one piece of advice that I got that I, that I incorporated, and actually it's a, a mutual friend of ours, Brian Williams, Yeah. Um, where he was talking about and now I should cautious if I should because I you know, probably said incompetent. So, Brian, I apologize. Um, but he's talking about how when, you know, uh, when he was a young reporter, how he used to travel a lot. And he said, what I started doing was writing notes, you know, to my kids yeah. and telling them about, you know, here's where I am and so on and so forth and what's going on and so on and so forth. So I always thought that was such a beautiful piece of advice. So even when I have to travel for work, I will always leave a note for both Mia and James. Mm. And just, you know, and, 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 you know, date it and just say, yeah. you know, here's the wonderful things that we did. Here's what I'm going to yeah, be doing. I have a week. journal on my phone. I've been writing a writer since he was born. It's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, like, hey, man, here's so what happened today. That. Yes. And if I get hit by a truck, hopefully it'll be on the cloud and he'll yeah. be able to look back on that one day. There you go. And also, also understand the moment we were in, right? Beyond yes. the pictures and beyond the Instagram, like what was really going on right. in mom and dad's head. And I actually talked to him in my writing as though he is my age wow. right or an adult so that whenever he wants he can go back and he's look at process it. It. Yeah, yeah yeah and yeah. he's gonna see the world through your eyes and which will help to interpret what type of eventually what type of parent he is right and and mia actually in fact i mean i'm i'm i, I mean i i adore her but i mean she she told me this must have been about three months ago. I didn't realize that she was, because I thought I was just writing them out. She showed me a box. She's kept every single mm. one of those cards. That's, cool. That's um, cool. That's cool. Kids are the best, man. Well, they are, and you are the best. So I want to thank you again for joining us on Angry Americans, for being a part of my first season, this first foray into the media. You. you have been a very dear friend and a hero to me, and um, you've always had my back. Always. And, and you've had the back of so many people in this country. You're just an inspiration, man. I thank you for giving so many people hope. And I know it's not all, you know, parties with Jay-Z and free peeps. <laughs> but, you know, you, you worked so hard. You have been working so hard for so long. And I know that so much more is to come. But on behalf of the, the communities you serve, 
And even when my nephew was going to college and struggling through that decision, you were helpful. So many times you've taken phone calls from people and been there as sage counsel and, and shared your wisdom and your experience. And now at this point where you're sharing it with the country. So I'm grateful for it, for how many times you open up yourself. That's also a hard thing to do. And you've been very candid in sharing your own personal experiences. And it's awesome, man. When, you, you, when I look up and I see you on TV or I read your writing or I follow you on Twitter, all of which people should do, you, you, my, you know, I'm rooting for you. And I think all of America is rooting for you. And the angry Americans are definitely rooting for you. And it's going to be exciting to see what comes ahead, man. And, and an early happy Father's Day to you. And to you too, brother. Thank Congrats you. on Cheers. all. God bless, man. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you all live from the Manhattan Classic Car Club. An incredible conversation with Wes Moore. <laughs>